0: Let's bring in our own Peter Coy. He is our economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Peter Coy, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here in in studio. Uh, tell us about the renaming of uh, a trade agreement. That yeah. this is now a bilateral. Uh, well, this agreement. is
2: just breaking now, so it, we're still digesting it. I think Trump is uh, speaking any moment now. He's going to start uh, elaborating on this, but that would be huge. Uh, I I would assume that then. Trump would also want to have a separate bilateral agreement with Canada. Right. And then maybe Canada would have one with Mexico. So it would really break down the... Yeah, well,
1: I mean, can you take a step back? What is the argument for bilateral agreements versus multilateral agreements? And, you know, why has NAFTA and some of the others been multilateral in the past?
2: Trump's argument for the bilateral approach is the U.S. is a very strong country with very open markets and everybody wants access to the U.S. market, so why not leverage that to the hilt? Thinking like a business person, that's what you do when you're in a negotiation. You use whatever you have to try to get the best deal possible. What other people say is that a multilateral deal, ideally a global deal, sort of like the World Trade Organization you know, uh, tries to promote, actually can be better for everyone because it allows for finer-tuned trade-offs. And it sort of lowers the temperature, because you no longer have heads of state butting up against each other on principle. You can sort of slide something in. You can argue, well, we're doing this for the greater good. Uh, We'll be better on net. And I think that happens even with trilateral, like the three countries versus bilateral. So there's no way to sort of describe it as being positive or negative. It just is different. Yeah, certainly different. But so far, Trump's bilateral approach has not borne a lot of fruit. You see what's happening with China. Um, it it all does is it gets the backup of the Chinese, and we, maybe we get less out of them than we would have if we had tried to pursue things. Not that not that the multilateral approach was hugely successful either. This is not an right. Easy that's problem. my point.
0: In other words, it's not as if the approach that was taken. Maybe if you take a case to the World Trade Organization, right. is going to get you the result that you're looking
2: for. True. True. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess then let's talk about the uh, the aspects of NAFTA as they were versus what an agreement would look like. I mean, what are the issues we should be paying attention to here that could get rejiggered as Mexico and the U.S. and Canada come up with bilateral agreements potentially?
2: Well, I, all I can say is what the sticking points have been and the the couple ones that where the U.S. and Canada are most coming into conflict – One of them is this fairly wonky issue of how to deal with disputes, and the Canadians have insisted for a long time that there be a binational sort of impartial mechanism. They don't want it to be handled in the U.S. court system, and that was a prerequisite for uh, the free trade agreement that preceded NAFTA, and Trump wants to get rid of it. Canada says that's a deal breaker for us, so that'll be huge. Then we have other issues like uh, dairy, of course, which I think that's much more easily resolved you know Canada will roll back s- tariffs here and there the US has a trade surplus with Canada on dairy so it's hard to believe that's a deal breaker the same way the dispute resolution mechanism is but the automobile industry may be another story well the the Canadian and u.s uh, auto industries are very tightly integrated yes products going back and forth across the border at all times so I think that the autos was more of an issue between US and Mexico where Of course, it's also a complicated supply chain. The US and Mexico seem to have resolved their issues over autos. The idea is to try to have more production done. This is Trump's goal in North America.
1: So here's what I'm really confused about. Don't we have a trade surplus with Canada pretty much across the board?
2: Yeah. So it should be doable to create an an agreement here.
1: So, so, why have there not been talks? Why has it been mm. why has the focus been solely on Mexico? And Canada is kind of an afterthought, even though the rhetoric has been raised between the two nations, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a sort of meeting of the minds there
2: it, it, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I think part of it is just personality. You know, Trump started going after Trudeau after the June g seven summit in Canada. He called him very weak and dishonest. That's kind of a blow. It's kind of hard to deal with.
1: So they don't like each other.
2: At this point, it's hard to, hard to argue there's a lot of love lost between those two guys.
0: Uh, Peter, I've been uh, mentioning energy as a big issue between the United States and Mexico all morning. And Mexico is really the big recipient for U.S. natural gas. We've got a lot of natural gas. We're looking for export uh, markets and Mexico is it. We've got four major pipelines that are scheduled to open by the end of the year. Uh, This is a very important uh, topic, particularly uh, in Texas. Is Mexico going to be substituting their own uh, supplies of natural gas and oil with Pemex for US uh, supplies? Because Pemex needs a lot of foreign investment.
2: Pemex one of the issues is that Amlo, the incoming president of Mexico, is much more of a nationalist than Peña Nieto, and he is uh, was never happy with the two thousand and thirteen opening <clears throat> of the energy sector to Mexico. so uh, it, but on the other hand, one of his representatives is part of the troika that Mexico's been sending up to these negotiations. so he's apparently signed off on this deal is a very that's a very positive sign. That's why there's been such a positive response to this tentative agreement between the U.S. and Mexico.
1: All right. So what is the U.S. likely to get? Do we have any sense?
2: You mean, f- say, with Canada? Yeah. No, uh, well, with Mexico oh, in particular. Oh, with Mexico. Oh, well, um, they do say, we're going to find out momentarily, and i stay tuned to Bloomberg Radio on this one, but it's they do seem like there's deals on autos and energy Uh, tightening rules to increase uh, auto production in North America, and somehow working out a deal that AMLO is okay with on uh, energy production between the two countries. Well, let me just give you this headline. We're talking about Canada
0: and the United States. Uh, President Trump says that he will call uh, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau soon and, uh, quote, we'll see if Canada is separate or part of the Mexico deal.
1: Interesting that they haven't been part of this. And, uh, The question is, is it going to be kind of a strong arming of Canada to sign on to something that's already been hashed between Mexico and the U.S. uh, versus having uh, Canada in the room? I don't know. It just is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. I guess uh, one question that I have is how much does Mexico rely on the United States for its GDP? Do you have a sense of just how crucial the U.S. is to Mexico uh, and, and vice versa?
2: Well, far more Mexico dependent on the U.S. than vice versa. Uh, Mexico can't, can't get along without uh, open trade with the U.S. Um, and that's Trump's theory, like, hey, look, we can push them around. But, but national pride enters in here. For both, both Mexico and Canada have national pride that gets wounded when they feel like the big brother is trying to roll them. And so that's why this is a potential problem.
1: Elon Musk decided he was just kidding, or perhaps just a little bit premature in his bid to take Tesla private. He says it will remain a public company, and it is due to pressure uh, from shareholders who said this is really what they wanted. Here to give us his take is Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Liam, wonderful to have you here. So, when you take a step back with this back and forth with Elon Musk, this round trip, where does it leave? Tesla as a company, better or worse off than it was
3: I think, before uh, August? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the key issue here is credibility. So, you know, if we look at this whole episode, it lasted 17 days where supposedly the company really completely seriously looked at what was likely to be the biggest, most complex uh, takeout transaction ever attempted all in 17 days, Uh, what we've seen really is this tweet that went out on August 7th. It's still not clear to me why that went out in the first place. And since then, we've seen a series of uh, blog posts and other tweets, which when you look at them, really look like attempts to create a narrative backing up that tweet. Uh, You know, one of the things that struck me about the releases that went out um, late, Friday night, very late Friday night, almost early Saturday morning, in fact. Um, One of the things that struck me about those was uh, the board's statement that it had, uh, you know, looked at this proposal uh, over the course of several weeks. It actually only set up a a special committee 10 days before that announcement went out on Friday. There was no um, formal proposal, as it acknowledged in the statement it put out when it set up that special committee. So I think the issue here is credibility. I don't think anyone, you know, it doesn't seem to be really moving the stock that much uh, this morning. I think where it could be an issue is if anything is attempted further down the line. Say there really is a serious buyout proposal further down the line or attempts to bring in an outside investor or attempts to raise money, which despite the company saying it doesn't need to, I and I know a lot of people on the street think it will have to.
1: Yes.
0: Tesla shares are currently down about 2.5%. They trade at $314 a share. That's nowhere near $420 a share, is it?
3: No. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about uh, Elon Musk's statement late Friday night, you know, in there as he was walking a lot of this back, he he still felt the need to put in this point saying that his, uh, his belief uh, that there were investors ready to... Um, to, to take the company private, had only been strengthened. What was interesting about that was, one, it, that he felt the need to, to put it in there at all. Uh, two, of course, he left out the key part of the whole thing, which was that 420 figure mm. that he put in um, on August 7th. Uh, presumably there are plenty of people who would put in money to a take Private transactions. Right, but Tesla. at what price? Just, uh, yeah, what price?
1: Well, there was a lot of interesting uh, sort of speculation, and there was an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal taking a look at what sort of went into Elon Musk's decision to walk back his going private uh, statement. Among the potential investors, Volkswagen, which I thought was interesting in this TikTok sort, sort of piece, they were saying that one reason why Elon Musk balked was because he didn't want to have any strings attached to this money going private, and he sort of liked the image of mom and pop shareholders having a piece of Tesla. He didn't like the image of big corporations getting access to his, uh, to his magnetism and his, uh, his momentum. And it just sort of raises this question about his views on investment and whether he really does have the right mindset in order to kind of raise the capital that he may need in any circumstance.
3: Yeah, I was struck by that as as well. I mean, there were two things. One is um, the idea that you're going to get billions of dollars of funding with no strings attached is just a bit ludicrous. Uh, Two, um, I I saw those stories. Uh, Again, it's not clear to me really how real any of this is. These are anonymously sourced stories that came out, uh, you know, after a very late Friday night uh, walk back of everything. Uh, It's
1: not clear to me how real any of this is. One question that I have also, where does the Securities and Exchange Commission come in here?
3: So I don't think this walk back is necessarily gonna end uh, uh, the SEC's probes of of what happened here. You know, it's very hard to say whether the SEC, how far the SEC will push this, Um, that's really in their hands. I think um, given the way this has been handled, you know, with a with a a tweet put out during market hours, uh, and then this you know this very late walk back on a Friday night. Uh, if I was the SEC, I would feel like clearly I would have to do something. I mean, you 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 it it's I think it's just very dangerous to create a precedent where a CEO feels empowered to throw out that kind of uh, information with not much backing it up and move the stock price quite a lot.
0: I want to thank you very much, uh, Liam Denning, our energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion.
1: After Jackson Hole, people are reassessing how frequently the Federal Reserve intends to hike interest rates both this year and next. Joining us now is someone who has been arguing for a long time that long-term Treasury yields will not rise that much. In response, his fund has performed better than 97% of its peers over the past five years. Lacey Hunt joining us now. He is Executive Vice President Chief Economist at Hoisington Investment Management. Uh, Hoisington is the sub-advisor for the Wasatch. Hoisington U.S. Treasury Fund, the one I was just talking about, uh, and uh, the firm that he, uh, where he works oversees about $3 billion. Le- Dr. Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start with the yield curve. We're near the uh, narrowest at this point since the crisis hit, and I'm wondering, the Federal Reserve does not seem that concerned. Do you think they should be more concerned?
4: Well, the yield curve is a very significant development. It's it's not the only monetary indicator, and one must never assume that there's a silver bullet or or a magic elixir. But um, the yield curve is flattening very significantly, as you said, and in, in our opinion, it reflects the the fact that there is a, a very substantial monetary deceleration underway. The, the Federal Reserve has hiked the short-term rate seven times. They're going to raise again in in September. There's been a very material contraction in, in all of the reserve aggregates, and this has followed through to uh, the rate of growth in the monetary and credit aggregates. We're seeing both sides of the bank balance sheet weaken very substantially. And in this context, the yield curve is a significant development. When when the yield curve flattens in an environment of monetary restraint, um, that is, first of all, a a symptom that the monetary restraint is starting to bite. And it also reinforces the restraint of the monetary change. The, the, The flattening in the yield curve reduces the profitability to everyone that's borrowing short and lending long. And and so therefore, it's important in its own right, and it's part of a of a monetary deceleration, which is clearly underway.
0: Lacey Hunt, can you talk about the con uh, the concept of liquidity, and what what that means for investors? Maybe make those connections because they may not be apparent on the surface.
4: No, they are not only apparent apparent uh, on the surface, Pam. And that's an excellent question. Um, the uh i think it's well understood that when when the fed um, uh raises the federal funds rate that they have control over the short rate the short rate has an influence um out the curve but that that influence diminishes rather quickly as we move to longer and longer rates and the the most complete theory of interest rates ever developed was was the one developed by the late Nobel laureate Milton Friedman and and Friedman gave us the uh, rather ironical statement he said that monetary decelerations lead not to higher interest rates but to lower interest rates and what he meant is that when the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, reduces the reserve monetary and credit aggregates, they put upward pressure on the short term rates. But as this process goes along, the rate of growth in the economy begins to weaken, so will the rate of inflation. And ultimately, monetary decelerations lead to lower, not higher, interest rates.
0: Do you believe That's that if question. you. Okay, well, if you. And, and I want to just connect that with what. You also maybe have alluded to, which is the repatriation of dollar assets by u s. corporations at the same time.
4: Yes, I think that I think that w- one of the other symptoms that monetary policy is biting monetary policy is very insidious. It has uh, extremely long lags. The lags are variable. Um and so you you look for symptoms that monetary policy is biting, and one of them is the flattening in the yield curve. Another symptom of the fact that the monetary restraint is is biting is that the dollar um is at a very high level relative to where it's been over the last twenty five years uh It's up you know six or seven percent so far this year
5: yeah.
4: and so the Federal reserve um is not only central bank to the US, but de facto, not, not legally, but de facto, the Fed is central bank to the rest of the world. And so when the Federal Reserve uh, tightens monetary conditions in the US, they drain liquidity from the rest of the world. And this tends to cause the value of dollar to rise, and it puts downward pressure on monetary growth in other parts of the world. In fact, we're seeing that in all of the major economies, uh, China, Europe, Japan. Yeah. and and so the us monetary restraint is transferred to the rest of the world another symptom of the monetary deceleration is that is that uh, commodity prices tend to move lower which they've been doing this year so the the overall economy seems to be very strong at a 4% growth rate in the, in the second quarter but but given the Uh, way in which monetary policy works, that was probably the peak rate of growth for the economy. Inflation rate also, we believe, peaked in the second quarter and will move significantly lower as we move through the balance of this year and into 2019.
1: So given that backdrop and given the fact that the market is currently pricing in uh, about two interest rate hikes through the remainder of 2018, where do you see the 10-year yield ending the year, given the fact that we're at 2.8%, give or take?
4: Well, um, our expertise is really in the long end. But, All right. So, what in the uh, long end, in the thirty-year, which is the, two point nine eight. I think the thirty-year will will be lower than it is today. Uh, the, just to give you a point of, of, of reference, when the Fed started raising the short rates in December of 2015. Um, the federal funds rate was you know, under 25 basis points, and the long bond was around 3%. We had seven hikes in the federal funds rate. We've had a substantial fiscal package, not just the tax cuts, but also a big increase in federal spending and a number of other things, a shortfall in energy production and difficulties with medical care pricing and so forth. But in spite of all those things, the 30-year bond is still 3%. And that that illustrates that the long end of the bond market is determined by a different set of parameters than the short term. And so, although the Fed will be pushing the short rates higher, Uh, as the market expects, the long end of the market is not likely to rise. They may rise intermittently over very short periods of time, but the long end is being uh, anchored by these fundamental factors, which point to weaker economic growth and lower inflation over time.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Lacey Hunt is Executive Vice President and Chief Economist for Hoisington Investment Management. They're based in Austin, Texas. Hoisington is the sub-advisor for the Wasatch Hoisington U.S. Treasury Fund. The symbol there is W-H-O-S-X. Got a little bit of a sell-off in the bond market today. The 30-year yield is 2.98%. This is Bloomberg.
1: In other news today, some of the biggest U.S. banks have continued to slash their exposure to state and city debt since the federal government cut corporate tax rate. This includes J.P. Morgan, State Street, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Bank of America. This is Bloomberg. Right now, let's turn our focus to Apple. They are tripling down on the iPhone 10. They are going to be rolling out new phones that have that computer uh, chip that allows the photographs that Pim was just waxing. Uh, waxing.
0: Yeah, the portrait mode. Yes, the portrait yeah, mode. it's and 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 the size of the of the device and you know okay, it doesn't have a button for the home screen, but it's you know you get used to it. John Butler, yeah. you you are you going to line up uh, overnight to to get a new Apple phone?
5: Uh, this year I am, Pam. I'm a buyer. See? There you go. Um, <laughs> why? The, well, first of all, it's not the first model year anymore, right? So they're going to be building on the design of the iPhone 10, As Lisa alluded to a moment ago, there's going to be really three new devices built off that basic design. Uh, one of them, we'll call it the iPhone 9, is going to be a lower cost 6.1-inch screen that's a you know it's it's a, it'll be lower cost with with uh made with lower cost materials but still a very solid device and then the at the higher end we're going to get the 5.8 inch screen with a feature update uh to the iPhone 10, current iPhone 10 which yeah. has the same size screen and then a larger 6.5 inch uh call it an iPhone X2 plus and as Pim said a moment ago, people uh, people really love those larger screens. There's even a rumor that it may work with the new Apple Pencil. So um, we'll but, see what they have in store. But excitement is building.
1: John, aside from just it's a shiny new thing that does cool things, I mean, how how big of a deal is this for Apple? Given the fact that it's not a huge departure from the iPhone X, it doesn't necessarily chart out a new path or new products. It, you know, can we put this into perspective?
5: Well, here's here's what's important to me, Lisa, is they keep expanding the iPhone product line, the number of SKUs, if you will. So there is a thought out there that the, highest, the high end of the memory is going to go from 256 to 512 gigabits while keeping 256 and 64. So you'll get... A broader product line out there, 20 SKUs this year versus uh, next year versus 16 this. Uh, so presumably that'll help sales a bit. But what's most important here is they're they're working to drive up that average selling price of the phone. And now that we can all finance it. our phones, Hold it's making.
1: That's the whole point. They want to that shift the, the whole, whole like dynamic of all of their phones. They want to have the average price point be closer to $1,000 than $200.
5: Sure they do, because average unit shipments year in and year out for the iPhone have been slowing. They're now in the low single digits. So to get that call it 10 to 15% growth in the iPhone category, which is still 65% of sales or so at Apple, you've got to drive up the average price. And you do that by expanding the high-end options, which is what I was just talking about a moment ago with more memory. Um, So I think they'll get there, and I like the the strategy. We'll see what's coming this year. It's, It's what's known as a soft upgrade year, right? So last year we got a significant redesign of the iPhone. The year following that kind of significant upgrade, called the talk year, you typically get feature updates. In this case, we're getting feature updates and more models, and then next year we'll hopefully see a more significant redesign. John
0: Butler, is it worth noting that the SIM card that customers use in their, let's say, non-iPhone X or iPhone X model will not work? Because the size is just different than that found on the newer iPhones, and that you're going to have to go in and get a new SIM card. Is it worth noting that when you go in and get a new SIM card, chances are you might buy an accessory or two?
5: Uh, I had not heard that, Pim, actually, but I will say that, yes, that could you know, anything that sparks a visit to your carrier where you're walking in, you're talking about your phone, what you can do with it, do I need a screensaver, do I need a case, do I need new headphones, for example? Yes. Wow, should I buy a watch to pair with this phone, (laughs) you know? Well, that's, uh, that's retail 101 is get the customer in the store and shopping and talking to a salesperson.
1: So. John, is there any sense that Apple's going to phase out some of the more inexpensive models that they have currently on market?
5: No, in fact, the, the latest I heard, which I thought was an encouraging development, is they may upgrade the iPhone SE, which is their low-range uh, uh, phone priced at 399 And that really is due for a facelift. You know, it's really gone through, I think, three years now without an upgrade. Um, so they really need to put a better processor in that phone. Um, what I was reading suggested that the small version of the iPhone 7 now will become the new SE. Uh, we'll see what's in store there. But I don't think they're going to do away with the low end. If anything, they should expand there a bit because they're trying to grow in India, which, um, where the average selling price of iPhones is well below the U.S. So to compete there, they need a low end.
0: Many thanks, John Butler, our Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I guess he's uh, getting his portable seat ready because he'll be waiting for those new iPhones.
1: Does your entire family have iPhone 10s? No. Do you? No. Your daughter? No. Your wife? Yes. Ding, 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 I got one. There you go, yes. <laughs> I got my son the SE. Did you? He loves yeah, it.
0: Of course they do, it's an addiction.